Hi, and welcome to the Mental Health Crossroads podcast, where we explore the intersection of mental health and developmental disabilities. This week, our host, Matt Wappet of the Center for Persons with Disabilities in the MHDD National Training Center, talks to Mary Giliberti of Mental Health America. Make sure to look in the show notes for links to these websites and resources, and you can also find a full transcript in English and Spanish. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening. Well, we'd like to welcome everybody to this uh, edition of the Mental Health Crossroads podcast. We're excited today to have Mary Giliberti from Mental Health America with us. Mental Health America is the nation's leading community-based nonprofit dedicated to addressing the needs of those living with mental illness and promoting the overall mental health of all. Uh, Mary Giliberti is the Executive Vice President of Policy at Mental Health America, which focuses on federal policy to promote prevention, early intervention, integration, and recovery. Prior to joining Mental Health America in 2019, she was the CEO of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI. She's also worked for the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Health and Human Services and as Disability Counsel to the U.S. Senate Health, Education, and Labor Committee. After graduating from Yale Law School, she clerked for Judge Phyllis Kravich on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and received a Skadden Fellowship to work at the Law and Center for Mental Health Law. And we're really, really uh, happy to welcome Mary here today. So thank you, Mary, for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Mental Health America? Sure. So Mental Health America is the oldest advocacy organization uh, for people with mental health conditions, founded in 1909 by a gentleman uh, called Clifford Beers, and he experienced a lot of abuse and discrimination on the basis of his mental health condition. Uh, So he founded the organization, and we still talk about um, how we, quote, fight in the open which was his saying, you know, I'm going to fight in the open. And I think that also says a lot about the organization because it comes from the perspective of that lived experience. Mental Health America also works very hard at the issues of prevention and early intervention. We like to call it before stage four. You know, when people talk about mental illness, they often are talking about crisis situations, criminal justice, some of the outcomes that are very troubling. But in all other kind of health conditions, disabilities, we try to talk some about prevention, early intervention. Um, So we um, really focus there and have that uh, tagline of before stage four. So we do a lot of screening on our website. You can come to Mental Health America's website and get screened for any mental health condition. And then we'll offer you choices of following up if um, what you say reveals any kind of symptoms or something that you might want to follow up on. That's great. And I've actually spent a bit of time on the Mental Health America website, and I'm really quite pleased with the depth of information. There is a lot of great information there. (laughs) So you've done a really good job of getting that out there. So this is kind of an add-on question. You know, Clifford Beers, I don't know that a whole lot of people know. Tell us a little bit more about his background and sort of his story and how that led to Mental Health America. Yeah, he's written a book, so, um, you know, we can uh, send that along, but um, people who want to learn more, but he um, was, when he was a young man, he had mental health conditions, he was hospitalized in a series of facilities, and he was abused, Um, and in those days, and as many know, continuing today, people have really awful experiences sometimes with the mental health treatment system, Um, but unlike many others, um, 
Clifford Beers had uh, gone to Yale, had a lot of connections politically, and he spoke out. He sent letters. He um, wrote a lot. He spoke frequently. I mean, he just was not going to, um, you know, accept how he was being treated. And uh, that led to a number of changes. His constant writings of governors got involved, uh, policymakers got involved. He made a difference by speaking out. Um, and I think that really set the foundation for Mental Health America and for our advocacy work and for recognizing that when you raise your voice, you can make a difference. Yeah. Well, and I think that's really important that, right, the, the founding of the organization was from somebody who was experiencing mental health issues. It's, you know, there, there's that foundation of advocacy right there at the very beginning um, and that lived experience, which I think becomes so important. So yeah, and Mental Health America also has 200 affiliates around the country and associate members. And I think that's also really important when you think about our organization, because we're grounded in that experience at the local level. And that's one of the things I like best about uh, working in the organization. And, and one of the reasons I've always chosen in my career to work at many organizations that have that local and state um, presence, because you're not working in a vacuum, you're not making things up, you're really trying to help people who are telling you what the issues are that they're experiencing in their local communities. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So what, what role does Mental Health America play in shaping policy around mental health? So we play a role at all levels of government. As I mentioned, we're at the local um, level, talking with counties and um, local communities, raising issues around mental health, and then at the state level and also at the national level. And I tend to do a lot of my work at the national level, which means that I'm working with Congress, I'm working with the administration, with coalitions of national groups that are coming together, whether that's a group of health organizations, disability organizations, mental health organizations, there's all different kinds of coalitions. Um, and we work together to try to get something done legislatively and administratively. That's great. So we mentioned earlier that you're the, um, here we go, the, the executive vice president of policy. So that is your bailiwick. That is your, that is your deal. Why is policy so important to you? Policy is definitely my passion. Um, and it has been now for the over 20, 25 years that I've been doing this. Um, and that's really comes down to a commitment to justice and seeing from a very early age, uh, when I first started, I was a law student. That's my background is law. Um, and when I was a law student, I represented a number of families, children, adults with mental health conditions. And I note over and over again, the discrimination the poor treatment, the lack of dignity, um, the injustice was just striking. The lack of payment parity, um, access to care, you name it. Um, and it all, I think, kind of stems from, um, you know, from, from this discrimination and from treating people less than uh, others. And, you know, I dedicated my career to trying to address that injustice. And I really saw it um, from, an, as I said, an early age when I was in college, um, my college roommate, one of my college roommates um, had major depression and the way she was treated during a suicide attempt and she ultimately died by suicide. But seeing how people responded, um, it, it, it was shocking to me um, and, and hurtful. 
And it really, then when I started representing people, I learned that this was not a one-off. This wasn't just about her. It was about a whole system that really um, denigrated people, called them crazy, um, awful things like that. And um, I just felt that it needed to change. And I'm, I'm happy that I think it has changed in some ways, although we still have a very, very long way to go. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, especially with COVID and everything else, it's highlighted some of the significant shortcomings in our system. And, you know, that social isolation's always been an issue for people with disabilities and people with mental health issues. But I think it's now become a little more mainstream, although we still, I don't think, are terribly effective at addressing it. <laughs> But so what are you, so, you know, you have a, you have a, a, a rich, rich history working at NAMI and OCR and, you know, working in the Senate with the health committee. Um, what are some of your most memorable experiences in your career working on mental health policy? Well, I'll give you one early in my career and one later. Um, early in my career, I had the incredible privilege to work on the Olmstead case. And the Olmstead case, um, for those of you who, who may not be familiar with it, was brought by um, two women who had been institutionalized in a Georgia hospital for many years and were not being released because the state didn't provide the services and supports that they needed. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court whether the Americans with Disabilities Act gave you a right to integrated services. And I was worked on the briefs. I was part of the team that was doing the research for the brief before the Supreme Court. I helped coordinate a lot of the amicus briefs. We had a whole team of people uh, working on this and it was just an incredible experience. And the court ultimately held that indeed uh, it was discrimination to needlessly segregate people and that states did have to take action. Um, and, and that suit I think really led to a lot of changes, not just in policy, but also in attitudes and what was expected and how people should be living their life. And the woman who, one of the women who were, was a plaintiff in that case, Lois Curtis, uh, was an artist. Um, and she, her work is absolutely magnificent. And I had the privilege to buy some of it, to go visit her in her home when she had moved from the institution and was now making um, a living from her phenomenal art um, and to have, I still have uh, many of those pieces and it just reminds me of the power of who people are and what they can do when they're given that opportunity, which Georgia was denying, but you know, the law um, changed that and I think continues. It's not perfect. There are many places where people still are not receiving the services that they need to flourish like she did knowing what's happened to her and her life and um, the beauty that she creates is really um, just very moving. Yeah, that's great. And then more recently, I would just say, I've been working, you mentioned COVID relief. Um, I've been working to try to increase resources for mental health in the COVID relief packages and the bills that are coming up to Congress. Um, back in the spring, mental health got several hundred million, a small amount compared to the billions that were spent in other areas. Um, and our, our CEO at MHA said, you know, if other areas of health are getting billions, mental health should be getting the same because of the increased needs. And while we haven't gotten anything yet over the finish line, the last bill introduced in the house did have $8 billion in the block grants for mental health and addiction. It was a proposal. We haven't gotten it all the way there, but just the fact that we are getting to the levels that other conditions 
um, have gotten as well. And there's a recognition that this COVID um, pandemic really affects mental health. That's great. That's actually really exciting to hear because that has been, yeah, a huge worry that's come up in various circles that we've been in and just the, the lack of funding and recognition. Um, for mental health issues during the pandemic. But um, you know, going back to what you mentioned about the Olmstead lawsuit, that's, uh, that's just a remarkable story. I know that the Olmstead lawsuit has shaped the, the bulk of my career and a lot of the work that we do um, in our programs here at the Center for Persons with Disabilities at Utah State. But um, you know, that's, I can't even imagine what it must have been like to work on that case. I mean, you think about the ADA and everything else being remarkable um land sort of why can't i think of this word <laughs> uh landmark lawsuits right mm -hmm. that I, or landmark policy but you know olmstead has such wide-ranging implications and continues to define um, a lot of the work that that we do in the disability and the mental health field so that's just i appreciate you sharing that story thank you Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was wonderful. As I said, Michael Gottesman argued it and Ira Burnham and others at the Baselon Center were just instrumental. And I was a relatively young attorney, right, fresh out of school. Um, and it really was an incredible opportunity to work on a case like that. Yeah, that's great. So, um, you know, the, the, I think the Olmstead suit's a good segue into the next question, which is sort of looking at integrating mental health and disability. The, this podcast is sponsored by the Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities National Training Center, which is looking at how do we deal with issues of dual diagnosis. Um, and so I'm curious on your perspective on how mental health policy and disability policy overlaps. And what are some of the challenges with integrating these two important areas of policy? So I think we can start with the Americans with Disabilities Act because we started talking about that and that's a good frame because the Americans with Disabilities Act covered all disabilities and there was a conversation at the time about whether mental health conditions would be fully covered and the disability community was adamant and I think this is why they were so successful because they united and said absolutely we are covering uh, mental health conditions and so mental health conditions are, are uh, part of the ADA covered by the ADA as disabilities and uh, are part of many of the disability policy issues that um, we are still working on today. You know, with respect to Olmstead, we work on housing, we work on employment, supported employment, all of which are important to the mental health community and the disability community. And then I think there are issues, just as there are with different categories of disabilities that are unique or um, different in mental health care. I already talked about the block grant and we were advocating for money in that block grant. That block grant is very specific to mental health uh, treatment or substance use treatment. There's other uh, parity, mental health parity has been a battle uh, for the mental health community. And that has come from insurance companies. In the old days, they used to put direct limits, 20 visits, for example. Now they're more subtle and they come up with medical necessity criteria that render you unable to get services. And there was a recent decision called the WIT decision um, in Utah that, that basically found insurance companies to be uh, engaging in those illegal practices. So there are um, lots of issues that are, I think, um, important to the mental health community as part of the disability community. And then there are some issues that are unique um, that we also advocate on. Yeah. So that, that issue of mental health parity, I know this wasn't one of my original questions, but 
Um, what are that? That's been a huge topic um, for the past twenty years, really. Um, what are I'm trying to think of how to phrase this, but um, why do you think it's such a challenge um, to address that issue of parity? Is it is it the stigma that is still out there with mental health, or are there other reasons um, that maybe insurance companies are less willing to um, provide the coverage for mental health conditions as opposed to others? I think like anything that's persisted for a long time, there's a combination of forces that are continuing to lead to inequity um, in terms of access to mental health care. And I just will note, since we haven't really talked about equity, that with respect to access to mental health care, there is great inequity um, with Black Americans and others having less access uh, to care than others. So parity shows that people with mental health conditions have less access than even within that. Um, we have communities that have that are disproportionately being affected by that lack of access. Back to your question about why it persists. I, I think stigma is part of it. I think it's part of why it hasn't, you know, really changed. I also think that we tend to um, get caught between different forces. So insurance companies are paying less. There's been studies showing that they are paying specialty mental health providers less than they even pay primary care providers. So there is certainly a pay inequity in what insurers are paying. And why is that allowed to persist? You know, I think that's where the stigma and discrimination come in because in the area of heart disease or cancer care, I just can't imagine that you could get away with having no access to providers. And when um, I can tell you, I take a lot of calls from families and from individuals who need help. And one of the first things I have to ask them is, do you need it covered by insurance? Now, in almost any other area of, of health or disability, you don't ask that question. Do you need it covered by insurance? But I have to ask that question. Um, and I think that, you know, that is really something that needs to change, still isn't changing because insurance companies in my view, continue to underpay. And then we have a workforce that we don't have enough. So many psychiatrists, other mental health professionals that are well-trained in evidence-based practice don't take insurance. Um, and that's a problem as well. There's no other area of medicine really, maybe dermatology where you see you know, huge numbers not taking insurance. And that becomes a real problem. So you know, the person and the family is kind of caught between a rock and a hard place in that their providers aren't taking insurance, the insurance companies aren't paying enough, and the family and the individual is left without, without affordable and accessible care. Um, and then we have, as I was saying before, they're managing the care such that they're denying care, denying aftercare, denying days. You know, one of the issues is people are getting discharged to nothing. So they'll be discharged from the hospital, um, and there's no services, no supports. So one of the things that we really push at Mental Health America and we're all pushing forward is the idea of peer support, um, the idea of people with lived experience helping people hopefully avoid going into the hospital in the first place, but also as they're coming out, be that bridge to help that person so they don't go to nothingness, which is really what happens now. In so many other health conditions, you get aftercare, you know, you get really good follow-up care. We don't see that uh, in yeah. mental health. Yeah, no, that's a that's a huge gap. So I mean, in addition to mental health parity and inequities and the disproportionality issue that you brought up, what are some of the most important mental health policy issues that people should be paying attention to right now? 
So I'll, um, I'll highlight two at, well, I already talked about peer support and that's one. I mean, many healthcare uh, plans don't cover it. So the commercial side, they don't cover it. And Medicare doesn't cover it. You know, a lot of people talk about how great Medicare is. On the mental health benefit side, Medicare is not so terrific. <laughs> just saying. Um, and and lack of coverage of peers is something that MHA has been um, advocating on. And we actually have worked on a bill with some other partners to cover it within integrated care settings. So in primary care and other kinds of settings where there's integrated care, we're starting there. But the ultimate goal is to see peer support covered by Medicare and other um, insurers. That's one issue. Another to issues and I want to just maybe start at the early intervention stage and the prevention because we've talked a lot about sort of um, some of the other areas and then uh, and then the other area of crisis care I think that's another area where a lot's happening so first early intervention and prevention I think there's been uh, some statewide developments around mental health education in schools and more and more schools that are offering mental health services on site and the mental health services on site in particular, I think is an important equity issue. If you look at the children, about 30% of those getting mental health services only get those services at school. And of that group, it is disproportionately children of color. So getting mental health services to where children are, rather than expecting children to get to the service, is really important. So the policy area of mental health K through 12 education in schools and mental health services in schools is something that we're paying a lot of attention to. And with COVID, the recognition is that these issues are really exacerbating. They were there before, really high rates, by the way, of adolescent depression and anxiety skyrocketing. Um, and so really the need to uh, get into schools and make sure that students are both educated and um, have access to care. And the prevention side is some of the social emotional learning that can be part of that, really to build resiliency and build skills um, in our youth. So that's one area. On the way other end is crisis care. And I do wanna mention, there's a new bill that passed, oh, just about a month ago, that created a new three digit number for mental health crises, 988. So right now, if you ask me, and I've been doing this way too many years, and if you ask me for the mental health suicide lifeline, I couldn't tell you the 10 numbers. Now, I probably should be able to, but I can't. But I know 988, that's pretty easy. And in two years, 20, by 2022, that will be implemented. There's a real question about what's going to happen. Is that just going to be a call number? Or is it going to be part of a larger system that provides more proactive crisis services that people actually want? Things like mobile teams, things like peers that come to them and help people get um, care and getting, uh, get help that they need and support rather than jails and prisons, which is where too many people are winding up. Or 911 calls where police come out and we have seen most recently um, many, many unfortunate, tragic deaths, um, people like Daniel Prude um, and others, uh, building on a history of others that have um, experienced death during one of those mental health crisis calls and a police response. So we believe that it's really an opportunity now with the passage of 988. And this is another area where not only is race equity important, 
but disability equity because you see many people with developmental disabilities, autism, also having issues when police are called and winding up harmed, dead, other um, bad outcomes. So the hope here is that with a crisis number, we really will see a change in how we respond to these, a community response, a mental health response, we're saying, instead of a police response. Yeah. We want mental health to be first, you know, the first people out, the, out, not the police. Yeah, no, that's, that's actually really exciting as we watch that um, develop. It's, you know, we have the same concerns, you know, what is this going to look like in the bigger picture? But just, I don't know if you followed the news just a month ago here in Utah, we had a, a it was a young man who was about 13 years old who had an autism spectrum disorder, but also some mental health issues. And it was in crisis. His mom called 911. The police came out and they shot him um, for no real reason um, other than they really didn't know how to respond. And it's really elevated the dialogue, at least here locally in Utah, about who should be responding to these situations. And so that, that 988 number and the discussion, I think, around this broader response system and community-based supports is so, so important to helping protect folks who are already um, struggling and are at significantly increased risk from anybody else. But, but then that, that notion that you brought up about the schools as well, oh, I have kids in high school and the stories that, you know, my kids come home and tell me and the number of, you know, students they know over the past four years who committed suicide because they've had a lack of supports and a lack of education and people just didn't know what to do when their friends were in crisis um, are tragic. And it's so, so important that we be getting that education down to those, to those early levels and really getting kids familiar with, right, talking about mental health, being comfortable talking about it like we do other health concerns. Exactly. And I think that's really what motivated me um, in this field, because when I think back, when I had my own friend who was struggling with depression, I literally said every single thing that all the mental health organizations would tell you not to say. Cheer up. We'll go to a party. It's going to be okay. Look on the bright side. I mean, you name it. Anything you're not supposed to say, I said it. Um, and that really set me down this path of recognizing that we need that education so people don't make the same mistakes that I did. And there's no reason for it. I mean, it's, it's something that is teachable. I, you know, we can teach people how to respond compassionately and how to help people get the help they need, which is very important as well. So you're absolutely right. I think the education piece is very important. And we also have to link it to the services because if you go to get help and insurance won't cover it, then, you know, what have we really accomplished? Yeah. Absolutely. So kind of on that note, how can people be more effective advocates? There's a lot of folks who want to get involved in, and see the importance of this, but don't know how to, um, what they can do. So what are some tips that you have around individuals who want to be more effective advocates in their community or even at the national level? Yeah, I would say get involved. Uh, at the local level with an organization that resonates with you. And that can be, um, there's a wide variety of organizations. 
Um, you know, I mentioned mine. I've worked for Mental Health America, and I've worked for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I also work very closely, and I'm actually on their advocacy lists for um, the uh, the Foundation for Suicide Prevention, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, AFSP. So, you know, you can get involved in any of these organizations depending on where your interests lie. Um, and I know there are many others for other disability uh, groups as well. And then, when you can do multiple ones, I do a few. Um, and then you want to get involved in talking with uh, legislators, writing to them, tweeting, whatever level of um, interest you have. Um, I helped my son the other day, he's interested in environmental issues, draft a, a, a message to his senator about that, you know, and I think that that's, and you would be surprised, I worked on Capitol Hill, um, and they do look at what are they hearing about? What is coming in? Where are the voices? Right now, the Affordable Care Act, for example, is up before the Supreme Court. Um, there are lots of people weighing in on that, trying to tell their congressmen, depending on what happens with that, what they want to see next. Um, and that's very important. In 2016, when Medicaid was threatened, you know, there was a time when we thought Medicaid was going to be converted to a block grant, which would have meant uh, an a precipitous decline in Medicaid. The, the response from people is what made the difference. We went to Capitol Hill with a thousand people at the time and they went and like sat in with senators and congressmen and their staff and told their stories. Um, there's nothing more powerful than a story that affects you personally. So uh, putting that story in, whether it's into emails, uh, tweets, social media, or even during meetings, depending on if, hopefully at some point we'll have meetings again. Right now, a lot of them are virtual. Um, but it is important. It is a way to raise your voice, and you can do it at all levels. I have been to my county and testified to my county board and said, I want the budget for mental health. I've gone, my neighbor does coffees with all the candidates. She likes to do that. I go to the coffee, I raise my hand, and I say, what are you going to do for the mental health budget in our county? What's your commitment? And I ask them, you know, so are you committing that you're going to increase it by what, you know, and hold them accountable. But going to those kinds of things, you might think, well, but if they go to all those coffees and somebody's got their hand up and they're saying, I want to know what you're going to do about this. You see action because they, they're hearing it. They recognize, wow, this is a problem. This is something I have to be thinking about. Um, volume matters, stories matter, getting out there at every level of government is important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think going back to what you mentioned earlier with Clifford Beers and the founding of Mental Health America, those personal stories and those personal experiences can be so incredibly powerful for moving policymakers and for really illustrating the need for, um, for these services. Yeah, and never underestimate, you know, the connections that you have. I mean, I, I remember doing advocacy and it turned out that our organization had the librarian in the hometown of the chair of the appropriations committee in that state. And that he took calls from that librarian and he sure did not want to disappoint her. Um, you know, you it's very surprising. People grew up next door, went to high school with. I mean, it's amazing how many connections people find. And that's really helpful. So I would just say, get involved. You might think, I don't have any connections, but you have your story. And as time goes on, if you keep doing the work, you will have those. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the, one of the things that we like to ask all our guests here um, at the end 
is what strategies have you found effective in supporting your own mental health? That's an excellent question. And I, I will be the first to say that there have been times when I have uh, not been as actively managing of my own mental health, and that is not a good thing. <laughs> um, so now I am very conscious to exercise every day, and I also took up meditation. Um, when things got very stressful for me at one point in my career, I took up meditation, and it was very, very helpful to me. Um, in sort of uh, allowing me to regenerate in the middle of the day or when I was feeling low. It's, it's a very uh, natural and helpful way to get your energy back up. Um, and I'm also uh, very cognizant of, um, of eating right. I particularly eat a lot of green leafy vegetables. <laughs> Yeah. And that I tends to affect my energy levels. So I would say, uh, and what I'm not good about, but I, I recognize I need to get better about is sleep. Um, and I would just advocate for people not to do as I do, but do as I say in this particular <laughs> case, and uh, be careful with your sleep. Yeah, sleep is, sleep is really, really important. And it's yeah. interesting. You know, it's one of the most common experiences, and we're only barely starting to understand how important that is for our mental health and cognitive functioning. So, yeah. Well, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, and so, like I said, I'm working on it. That's all I can say. <laughs> and I think that's also it. I think that with mental health, we all have mental health, and, you know, we just need to work on it. It's not easy to take care of your mental health many times either because of, you know, you're busy working or you, you just you, yourself you know, you're the last one in line sometimes, and it's really important to change that and recognize that you can't give from an empty vessel. Yep, you're absolutely right. It's, yeah, and it's something that we're all, we all keep trying, right? We, right. It just takes practice. So. <laughs> so how can people get more involved in supporting your work at Mental Health America? So you can go to our website, and we have an advocacy um, group and you can sign up and then you will get our alerts and you will get um, options to participate in different ways. You also can find an affiliate uh, by going on our website that's near you and get involved at the affiliate level. And they too have websites and advocacy and programs and different ways that people can get involved. Perfect. Well, thank you, Mary. We really appreciate your time and your perspective. This has been a delightful conversation and we hope that our listeners um, take something away and are committed to getting more involved in advocacy and policy. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Mental Health Crossroads podcast, where we explore the intersection of mental health and developmental disabilities. Visit our project website at mhddcenter.org or follow us on social media at mhddcenter. Thanks for listening.